Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of a head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. In the next few weeks over this period, I would like to introduce new followers to some of the past guests of Heads Talk, and in parallel, some of the great conversations I've had with C-suites of multinationals about the topics of the day in their area of business. I do hope you enjoy this Look Back series, and I have enjoyed sharing the first set of Look Back episodes late last year and very early this year. Um, There will be two guests in each episode and they will be introduced accordingly. This episode is of two incredible and great guys um, that I have the utmost respect for and value their opinion on a number of things. The first is Christoph Kabalis, Chief Economist um, of IMD. I need to have another conversation with him in the near future. Um, have a listen to to this snippet um, of our conversation. Let's let's speculate for argument's sake. Um, could it cause permanent irrevocable damage to democracies? And, and am I exaggerating or, or being an alarmist if I say perhaps we're at the beginnings of a new era of governing in the, the democratic world? Um, a modification, however slight, of what we define as a democratic country. Can you give us examples, um, Christos? Well, we discussed before about New Zealand and, and, and the amazing work that the Prime Minister did to convey uh, both the issues with COVID-19 and her and her, her administration's plans to address it. And in doing so, essentially, the, the main point that she was trying to do is she was trying to build trust in the institution of government, in the institutions of health authorities, in the institutions of hospitals. All these are institutions for the society. And, uh, and therefore, she was working as a government, which government changes, mm-hmm. um, to enhance the importance of institutions of the state, which remain. Uh, if we start having distrust in institutions, the credibility of these entities go down. And of course, then, as we move forward, the state becomes weaker. Uh, I, I think we are observing right now uh, exactly what's going on in the United States, where essentially there is a major distrust, distrust in many different institutions. It started with distrust towards uh, CDC and the appropriate um, suggestions that they had in order to try to combat combat uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, follows now with a major distrust over uh, different uh, elected members on doing their job. It, it, and, it, and the outcome is tremendous polarization. And this polarization is not going to go away in one day when the whole when the new administration comes in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, it, but the new administration will have a tremendously difficult task mm-hmm. 
to, in many ways, build, the, rebuild this trust on the institutions of the country. Um, and, and so as not to alarm my listeners, um, you do end your article quite heavily on, on what you've just talked about in terms of the transparency and the importance of the presence of um, um, institutions for political stability. Again, a very, very interesting article. I think I read it two or three times because I found it so fascinating. So I urge my listeners to, to have a read and comment on it where possible. Um, okay, sh shall we move on? Please do. Okay, um, let's, let's go into IMD in the World Competitiveness Centre. You are the Chief Economist, as mentioned at the beginning, of the IMD World Competitiveness Centre. It's recently celebrated 30 years since its inception. Um, I suppose there's nothing bigger than countries competing with each other. For my listeners, what is the WCC? What do you rank and what is the frequency of the rankings? The, yes, thank you. The World Competitiveness Center actually is one of the centers at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we um, rank different economies, 63 to be precise, um, mainly middle and high income economies mm -hmm. with respect to competitiveness. And we produce these rankings because there are more than one. We, we create three rankings. We produce them annually. A very important issue is what do we exactly define as competitiveness? Mm. And competitiveness is the ability of an economy to create an environment within which the private sector will be able to produce um, sustainable value-added um, services and goods. Mm. And uh, in doing so, by increasing uh, the, the, the value for the country, uh, essentially what's going on is that it increases the prosperity of its citizens. So competitiveness is a, a, a tool that can be used by governments in order to enhance the prosperity of the citizens of the economy. Mm. So, um, you, digital competitiveness is one of the measurements or one of the rankings you do. Um, what, is, what is being measured exactly with digital competitiveness of a country? Digital competitiveness actually tries to capture the capacity and the readiness of the 63 economies to to adapt and explore the digital technologies that are present right now, uh, because with these digital uh, technologies, we realize an economic and social transformation. Mm. And to do that, uh, we basically rely on three factors. Uh, knowledge, which captures the intangible infrastructure um, that is necessary for learning and discovering mm -hmm. uh, the benefits of technology. Mm -hmm. The second factor is technology, which mm -hmm. essentially um, quantifies the landscape of developing the digital technology. So it tries to quantify the regulatory uh, framework or the, the capital availability in a particular economy. And final, Finally, uh, the third factor is future readiness, something that we find a very fascinating factor because in essence, future readiness tries to examine how prepared 
and economy is to assume all this digital transformation. And the way that we try to measure that is by, in some respect, trying to see how flexible individuals in economy are in order to adapt the existing technologies and use them. Mm -hmm. And also how flexible, how agile, um, the business sector is in order, again, to adapt and use uh, these technologies, the modern technology. And finally, uh, how these technologies, all the IT framework has been able to be integrated in the daily lives of the citizens and businesses. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's, I think that's pretty comprehensive. Um, I'll just throw this additional question to it. Um, you may not have an answer to it, but it'd be interesting to, to get your viewpoint on it. So, which technologies do you think, more than others, will forge the creation of perhaps a new ranking or a new category to be measured? Um, this, is a, this is a very interesting question. Um, I, I, undoubtedly, uh, more specific questions about artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, when we are able to basically uh, use them and find ways to quantify um, uh, things related to artificial intelligence will be included as additional uh, criteria. I also think that um, in many ways, we are riding a wave where the technology advances so rapidly. Uh, the only thing that we do is actually trying to take advantage of whatever is produced. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, technology and, and um, digital technology has both benefits and costs. And sometimes, at least until very recently, we were not uh, that keen in capturing this trade-off. Now we have Epaminondas Farnakis, CEO of Human Rights 360. And yes, before the episode recording, I had to practice his name a few times to get it right, to get it on form and to get it perfect live. So that was a nice little challenge for me. Um, you must listen to this full episode. Um, Epaminondas taught candidly about the, the human rights crisis. So many poignant bits in this. Please, I urge you to have a listen. When we talk about human rights, um, there, there is a sense of um, it being a faraway problem. And here in the West, we have um, a healthy measure of it. And there are some balances and freedoms in this space. The aim of your organization um, is to, and I quote, put together greater alliances in Greece and internationally to work in order to build vibrant and tolerant societies whose governments and societies reject far-right rhetoric, extremism, racism, and xenophobia, while being accountable to and encouraging participation of the people. However, in recent years, and with the rise of populist parties on the right, or the right fringes of the political spectrum, for example, um, Germany AFD, Liga Nord in Italy, um, Viktor Orban, uh, the Prime Minister of Hungary, um, who said to govern in a very auto autocratic way. You've got your work cut out for you, haven't you? Do you feel there is a trend that would erode the heartfelt human rights across the Western world? And perhaps you'll see more and more compromises in Europe when it comes to such rights. Are you fighting a losing battle? 
I, I hope not <clears throat> for the sake of, um, you know, our children and the next generation, because as, as you suggest and you very correctly describe, these issues have been, uh, let's say, boiling uh, in Europe and other countries, as we have seen most recently in the US as well, mm -hmm. for many, many years. They didn't just happen. And, and we have to recognize that we are up against a, a very, uh, let's say, uh, capable network involving millions of, uh, uh, let's say, people uh, getting uh, information through uh, Facebook, YouTube, and other social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and th there is a lot of uh, local uh, and international collaborations in that front. And we haven't really managed <clears throat> worldwide to build the equivalent network to, uh, let's say, defend against fake news and other xenophobic rhetoric. Yes, yes, yes. yes. absolutely. And, and, and don't forget also that this is a, a multi-million industry. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the far right networks that we are up against, and 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 we are scattered uh, uh, into small groups with uh, smaller budgets all over the world. So it's not an even battle, but it's a battle that uh, has to be fought for the future. For example, in Greece, we have been fighting uh, not only ourselves, uh, but a lot of uh, activists and organizations a seven-year battle against uh, a network called uh, Golden Dawn. And uh, recently, last October, um, uh, there was uh, the end of a multi-year, let's say, trial that uh, saw uh, all of its members, uh, 69 of them, uh, convicted uh, uh, for major crimes. Uh, these were neo-Nazis uh, terrorizing, murdering people uh, in Greece. And uh, it, it is because of the civil society that they were brought to justice. Um, so there, there are uh, positive examples like that one, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, we have a really long way to go, as, as you suggest, uh, globally uh, to fight that. And, and, and if I make, can make a, one last comment on that, mm -hmm. we, we, we haven't really been able and uh, governments, political parties, municipalities, stakeholders, we haven't really looked at the root causes of uh, these movements, let's say, these fastest, fascist movements across the globe. Uh, mm -hmm. And there, there are opportunities there uh, to correct mistakes or to um, uh, provide you know, additional uh, safety and services to local communities that uh, that feel that they have been left out or, or are in, mm. in fear of the future. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where I think we have to be a lot more supportive. Mm. Okay. But surely there are uh, one, two, a few papers on suggestions on what could be the causes of these. There must be some white papers on that. Oh, there are, yes. I mean, they're, they're very important studies, mm -hmm. uh, both locally and internationally, for sure. But they're not but, uniform in terms of their conclusions, right? I am assuming. Absolutely, yes. Your assumption is very correct, and 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 but but also I'm afraid political parties and government, uh, wherever they are coming from, uh, are concerned about these issues in the pre-election cycle, but oh. not really once they are elected. Uh, we don't see these policies implemented uh, based on the suggestions provided. Okay. Okay. Um, I did say I was going to pass the question, but if I may, can I? There's. I would like to go back to the trade-off questions. Um, can, may I ask that? Oh, please. 
yeah. I, I really liked it's more sort of in your daily work as opposed to sort of generally you spoke generally but I, i'm going to sort of narrow it down to specifically to the your organization and the work that you're doing and so, so what are the trade-offs you're facing in your daily work and um, how are you balancing human rights with making progress in other areas e.g. Uh, sustainability which you talked about can you provide us with a taste of some of these trade-offs and challenging decisions you have to make probably because the immediate need outweighs the long-term issues we do yes we do and it, and it's um, it happens daily as you suggest Mm -hmm. um, some days more than others, but of course it, 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 it affects us. I mean, our principle uh, generally is a, a do no harm policy. I mean, mm -hmm. when, when you are catering to vulnerable uh, groups, mm -hmm. uh, they already have suffered a lot, I mean, depending on their situation. So your main principle is, is to do no further harm with uh, what you are trying to do to these uh, uh, groups and, 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 and vulnerable uh, categories of people. Mm -hmm. that are affected so to give you an example yes again when we have a, a proposal that we for example that we are and and we just did that uh, a few months ago we were uh, looking to uh, regrant uh, funding to ngos that were accommodating unaccompanied minors which means that were children with no parents in greece um, they had to arrange uh, facilities uh, like small shelters or small uh, hotels, for example, or apartments. Uh, and, you know, there is a trade-off because <clears throat> when you are constructing something, you want to make it environmentally sustainable, and, and which is uh, also financially sustainable. So that you are not relying too much on electricity, that you have other ways of uh, getting power, for example, solar, etc. And, and, and a country like Greece is ideal for that. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't convince um, the donors, the funders in this case, or in other cases, that this was worthwhile. I mean, uh, there is a trade-off because uh, somebody that is funding mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> an activity wants, uh, you know, very quickly results and very quickly to, to measure the impact of the grant, which is very logical and very normal. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, we are not really building, uh, quote unquote, something that would be environmentally and financially sustainable for the future. And then when the funding runs out, we have to do it all over again. Now that concludes this episode of the Look Back series. I hope you enjoyed these snippets and do check out the full original episodes in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.